I want to use a verse in Proverbs chapter 22 to introduce a study to you for this day and hopefully give you a verse that you can easily remember that will provoke you. Proverbs chapter 22, I want to read to you the 28th verse. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Proverbs 22 and verse 28. Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. We just had read to us Joshua 24, Judges 2, Revelation 3. In Judges chapter 2 and Joshua 24, we had reference to a stone being set in an oak and that stone being a witness to the covenant that Israel had made to serve the Lord and to follow His commandments. But Israel soon forgot that stone, didn't they? And brethren, it is a trial of our faith to hold fast the things that have been committed to our trust for this generation and for the generation of our children and our children's children if Jesus Christ tarries. We do not want to remove the ancient landmarks which our fathers have set. Now when Solomon wrote this verse, his primary intent was a commandment that would be gathered under the commandment, Thou shalt not steal. He was protecting real property. Real property is real estate, land, fields. And this proverb is a warning to men not to mess with contracts, with covenants, with deeds, with wills, and with property boundaries in order to respect the property value, property rights of others. When, when Solomon wrote, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set, he was referring to markers for the boundaries of fields. Before the advent of modern surveying equipment, iron stakes, computer record keeping, county records, and all of those advantages, before the arrival of those blessings that we have, they would put a stone or a pile of stones, a post, dig a hole, make a ditch, where fields intersected, and that was your property boundary. You know, today we have our property boundaries measured to the quarter of an inch. We have global satellite positioning services. We have aerial photographs in the county archives that anyone in here can access through their computer at home. They didn't have those advantages. Solomon's warning is, don't you dare touch those ancient landmarks that mark fields. A thief during the night could easily move one of those posts, a stone or a pile of stones, a few feet, which would be imperceptible to the human eye in the middle of a large field where three owners may have come together at one intersection. By moving that stone in the right direction only a few feet, he could greatly add to his property at the expense of the three owners that adjoined his. The warning is, remove not the ancient landmark. Don't you dare do that and take away the property rights of others. They are protected. And then when he said, which thy fathers have set, he's referring to the fact that Israel's lands were by tribal inheritance, by God's order, to the twelve tribes. And those tribal inheritances were important and didn't want them altered. And which thy fathers here, the word fathers and referring to the word ancient, is describing that original distribution of the land made under Joshua. Right. And so we have Proverbs 22 and verse 28. 
Its intent is property rights. Its intent is that we better keep every contract, covenant, deed, and will that God brings into our lives. However, there's a secondary aspect of this verse that I want to use for your memories and to provoke you as we consider the subject this day. When it says, Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have set, I am referring to our fathers in the faith and the ancient landmarks of the true religion of Jesus Christ. The apostolic faith once delivered to the saints. We must earnestly contend for it. There are efforts being made on every side to move the ancient landmarks, to remove them, to uproot them, to put them in other places, to take away the careful delineation of fields of truth that God has given us. And I want to exhort every father in here to be faithful to the ancient landmarks that I am going to review very briefly with you that God has given our church. I want every child in here to hear the call that we need some young men who will grow up in the fear of the Lord and the love of truth, that will defend it with their lives, that will be faithful to it and not let it be lost. It's being lost on every side. The Bible warned us about it. It said that men would turn their ears away from the truth and be turned into fables. They would heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, wanting to hear the things that would please the flesh, rather than the sound doctrine that God expects to be preached from His pulpits. Remove not the ancient landmarks. They set up a landmark in Israel. It was a large stone. Joshua said, this stone has heard your words. This stone is a witness that you have said you will serve the Lord. I want you to recall from Joshua 24 that Joshua told them, ye cannot serve the Lord. For the Lord your God is holy and the Lord your God is jealous. What he meant by those words is, he will not accept compromising worship. You cannot mix his worship with the worship of any of the gods of Canaan. He will not accept it. That's what he meant when he said, ye cannot serve the Lord. He knew those people upon his death and the death of the other elders were going to go after false gods, and they did. Moses knew it. Moses warned, and they did. Brethren, remove not the ancient landmarks, or the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. Our fathers in the faith have given us the word of God and given us much truth. We are thankful to God for it, and we're thankful to them for it. Let's be faithful to it. The Lord was very merciful while I was away from you last Lord's Day and stirred up my spirit and my mind, and I'm going to share some of that with you today. But the first thing I wanted to do was to point out this verse, and I hope that you remember it. Remove not the ancient landmark. To prove that my explanation of Solomon's primary intent is true, you can look in chapter 23 and verse 10. Proverbs 23 and verse 10, where Solomon wrote, Remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless. See, there we have the Bible defining terms for us that what's under consideration is property rights, real property, the sustenance of a nation, its land and fields, and the surveying and delineation of those lands were to be protected. But we are using this verse to provoke us not to remove anything that God has given us in the way of truth. And I want to call on all the men, the grandfathers, the fathers, and the young men, the women, 
our grandmothers, our mothers, and our daughters to be faithful to what God has given us and to never turn away from it. The whole Christian world is collapsing around us. They have, they are the ones changing. We look strange to them because we have not joined them in all the changes that they have made in the last 150 years. But they are changing and we cannot change because the truth of God does not change. The simple lesson. The Bible's exceeding broad. When the Bible says, remove not the ancient landmark, I'm taking a liberty that the Bible gives me to teach a lesson from the New Testament, and that is to hold fast to the faith once delivered to the saints. When the Bible said that you should not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, was that a rule for how zoos and farmers should treat oxen? Or was that a rule for how ministers should be taken care of? Paul said, no doubt, it was altogether written for our sakes. And when I use Proverbs 22 and verse 28, I'm using it in a secondary sense. Remove not the ancient landmark. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 6 with me. Jeremiah chapter 6. God has been very merciful to us. He has given us much truth. Truth is a gift from God. Men do not discover truth. They have it revealed to them. Jacob prayed and thanked God. I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies or of all the truth that thou hast shown unto thy servant. Jacob knew where truth came from. It came from the Lord God of heaven. And he gave him thanks for it and said he wasn't worthy of the least of it. And you better remember that when it comes to truth. It is a gift from God. We can read in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 that we are bound to give thanks all way to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to eternal life through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our Gospel. If you believe the truth, it's because God appointed you to believe that truth. It's because God opened your heart like He opened the heart of Lydia to believe the truth. It's because God has stirred up your heart to care about the truth. And I'm praying that God will stir up our hearts even more this day to love the truth, to teach it to our children, and to say, no more! I will not change anymore. I will stand against this world in matters of doctrine and practice to preserve the landmark of our fathers. Lord, help us. Jeremiah chapter 6. We have a wonderful verse. Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Jeremiah 6.16, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, And ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. That is exactly what is being said today. We are sick of long, boring sermons. We want to be entertained. We want athletes coming to our church to tell us stories about their athletic accomplishments. We want nightclub acts called special music because we would rather be entertained than have the Word of God preached to us. This is happening in our day. Second Timothy chapter 4 proves that it's happening in our day. But the Word of the Lord to us is, Stop! Look at what's going on. Look where everyone is going and find the old paths and get back into them. Right. I hope that fits with Isaiah 
58 and verse 12, where it said you can be a repairer and a restorer by getting back in those old paths. I want to provoke you today to love the old paths. I want to tell you about a few men that have gone before us and let them stir you up as being two more in a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that the great cloud of witnesses of Hebrews 11 should provoke us to live holy and righteous lives. They were holy and faithful. We should be holy and faithful. Jesus Christ has gone before us. He was a minister of truth. He was called faithful and true. And we want to follow in his steps. We want the old paths. Look at Jude. Jude and the third verse of its only chapter. Jude 1, 3. Oh, Lord, help us. Stir us up, Heavenly Father. Children, there is only one way to worship God. There's not a multitude of ways. It's not what you're sincere about. The prophets of Baal were sincere. The nuns of Rome are sincere. The gurus of the Hindus are sincere. Sincerity means nothing. Truth means everything. God has given a precise way to be worshipped, and we want to worship Him that way. We want to believe it. We want to remember it. We want to hold on to it. We want to teach it. We want to defend it. We want to protect it. We want to promote it. We do not want to continue the downward slide of so many churches around us. And they are no worse than we are. By nature, we are all the same. If it weren't for the grace of God, we'd be running down that precipice or falling off it as fast as anyone else. It's by the grace of God. But since He's shown us His grace, let's be faithful with the truth He's shown us. This is by order of a New Testament apostle. Jude 1, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The true faith and religion and gospel and doctrine of Jesus Christ came one time. It came by Jesus Christ and His apostles. It is not continuing to come. It has not been improved by Rick Warren and 40 purpose-driven days. He has not improved it at all. It is found in the Word of God. It was delivered once. And we are to earnestly contend for it. To contend for something is to fight for it. We are in a war. The devil, the world, our flesh, carnal Christians, the unregenerate that get into churches, they are all out to fight against truth. They want to take truth out of the churches of God. And we are in a war. We must earnestly contend. And so he says, Beloved, I had to write to you and I had to exhort you that we must earnestly contend. Now if contending is fighting, then earnestly contending is hard fighting is severe fighting, is zealous fighting for the truth's sake. Let's love the truth. Austin, you know, you sit right there in the aisle. And so I I see you often. I hope when I'm long gone, if the Lord Jesus Christ tarries, that you're going to love the truth. You're going to know the truth. You're going to remember the truth. You're going to keep it. You're going to protect it. You're going to fight for it. You're going to defend it. And you're going to promote it wherever you can. The truth of God. Every other Anthony, every other young man in here, and there's many of you. Eric, Michael, 
I see you sitting there behind Eric. Every one of you to hold fast the truth or it will disappear as we lie in our graves waiting for the resurrection. Let that not happen to what God has shown us. Look at Proverbs chapter 21. Here's what our fate will be if we forsake or forget the truth. Proverbs chapter 21. There are certain paths that God has given us. There are certain ways that God has given us. I want every one of my sons by birth and sons in Christ to be zealous for the truth. There are some of us older men in the and we are scared. We are grieved that we do not see our sons as zealous for the truth as we have been. We are nothing. But God has provoked some of our souls to be repairers and restorers and we have loved the truth. There is nothing more important for your life than to know the truth, to practice the truth, to be able to defend it, teach it, and promote it. Here's what will happen if we leave the way of truth. It's called a path. The Word of God is a lamp to our pathway. It's a light to our feet. We're to seek the old paths. Jeremiah 21, I mean Proverbs 21 and verse 16. The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain in the congregation of the dead. If we lose our road signs, if we lose our landmarks, so that we wander out of the way of understanding that pleases God, we will remain in the congregation of the dead. People that are in a dead church don't know they're in a dead church. That's why I had Revelation 3 read to you. It's one of the reasons I had Revelation 3 read to you. That church said, we're alive. Jesus Christ said to them, no, you're dead. When is a church dead? When God the Holy Spirit removes the, when God, when the Lord Jesus Christ removes God the Holy Spirit from a church. That's called taking away the candlestick. Jesus threatened the church at Ephesus in chapter 2 with removing the candlestick. Then a church is dead. If we wander out of the way of understanding, we will remain in the congregation of the dead. Because once you get off the path where the landmarks are, where the doctrine of God is, and the true practice of God, you get way off there in a morass, and you can no longer see the landmarks, and you're lost. And you remain in the congregation of the dead. And there are so many denominations that have been in the congregation of the dead since their formation. And there's so many churches. And if God isn't merciful to us and we aren't zealous, it'll be true of us, because we're no better than the rest. But by the grace of God. We cannot wander out of the way of understanding or we'll remain in the congregation of the dead. Oh, brethren, you know some of these points so well, and I don't have time to repeat them to you. The meets and bounds. The meets and bounds for truth are determined by one thing only. The Holy Scriptures of God. No man's opinion. No group of men's opinions. No one but the Word of God itself. And we must stand on the Word of God. Where can I turn you? Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. I have many verses and few minutes. So we'll tithe the verses and hope that they're sufficient to remind you. The meets and bounds, the landmarks of the path of understanding, the way of understanding, the old paths. How do we find them? How do we know them? Only by one thing. Not by history, but by the Word of God. 
Because we have to judge all of history by the Word of God. Because something is old doesn't make, 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 mean that it's right. But I'll tell you, what's right is old. And all the new things that they're inventing are not right. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. There is no way we'll see the way of understanding or the path of holiness to follow God in pure religion if we go anywhere but to the law and to the testimony. What's the law and the testimony? It's God's word. It's God's word. We are to go to the law and the testimony to determine anything. And anyone that speaks contrary to that has no light in them. It does not matter how educated, intelligent, successful, popular they might be. It's the Word of God. Amen. Let's remember that and measure everything with the Word of God. You know that. When Paul preached in Berea, they searched the Scriptures daily to check our brother Paul. Right. And Paul would tell them, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. He would tell Timothy that Scripture is able to make you perfect, Timothy. It's able to truly furnish you unto all good works by the doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness that it gives. Amen. So, our meets and bounds are determined by Scripture. However, the Lord has to open hearts and eyes to be able to see it. Look at Isaiah 29. Since you're in the book of Isaiah 29, I will pick that from several texts. I've already made mention of the fact that God opened the heart of Lydia so that she attended unto the things spoken by Paul. God, made, God did something in the heart of Lydia when she was out there to pray so that when she heard Paul, she believed that. She loved that. She wanted to obey that. She was immediately baptized and said to Paul and his companions, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord at all, come and stay in my house. I want to take care of you preachers. Acts chapter 16. The Lord opened her heart. Isaiah 29. I want to read a couple verses to you. Beginning at verse 9. Stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers hath he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. <laughs> Whoa, that's, in a tough, that's a tough spot, isn't it? Those that are learned think the book is closed to them. They can't figure it out. Those that aren't learned have the excuse of not being learned. No one has the truth. God's closed their eyes. He's covered their seers. There's the prophets. They're prophets. They're preachers. He's closed up their minds. He's stopped up their ears. They can no longer hear, see, or understand truth. This is the judgment of God upon a rebellious people. He's always done this throughout the Testaments, whether it's the Tower of Babel or whether it's in the New Testament. When Jesus Christ would say, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank Thee that Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. O Lord, help us to be babes that are faithful to Your Word. 
The one true gospel doesn't change. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Remove not the ancient landmark because the boundaries don't change. What was right and what was wrong in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles is the same thing that is right and wrong today. We want our church to look like an apostolic church, not like a seeker-sensitive church or any other kind of church. We want it to look as apostolic as we possibly can for the glory of God, for the preservation of the truth, and for the worship of God that He'll accept. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, my point being, the truth of God doesn't change. 13. 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul tells his ministerial understudy, Timothy, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Hold fast. Now when you're holding, you're not going very fast. So we must understand our King James words. Hold fast. I've told you this before, but I don't ever want you to be confused, especially our children. Fast is referring to being fastened. Hold it fastened so that it doesn't get away and doesn't slip away and doesn't change. Hold fast. Be glued to the words you've heard me use, Timothy. Don't change. Don't change. Just keep repeating what you heard me teach. Chapter 3. No, chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Look at what Paul told Timothy. Here's ministerial succession. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses... The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Four generations of preachers, and they're all preaching the same thing. Paul preached it. Timothy heard it among many witnesses. He committed it to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. The same doctrine, once delivered to the saints, is to be protected by ministerial succession of men committed to what Paul taught. No wonder some of them in history were called Paulicians. Because they were followers of the Apostle Paul. Because Paul said, be ye followers of me, even as I am a follower of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Look at chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Is, is anyone else hot in here? It's very hot. We need air conditioning. And we can afford it. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Same book, same writer and reader. Paul is telling Timothy, continue, stay in the things that I've taught you. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. You know who taught you. It was me, the apostle to the Gentiles. Look at Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And verse 9, here's a qualification for a minister. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. Titus 1.9, holding it fast. Fastened in his hand and held tightly is what hold fast means. Not to give up on the truth, not to change from the truth, because the truth doesn't change. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. God's saints have continued in the one apostolic faith from the beginning. They've been small in number. They've been persecuted. They have suffered great calamities. They have gone under different names. But there have been Baptist congregations since the apostles that have held fast the faithful truth of God's Word. And it began the day of Pentecost. We read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They continued steadfastly. There's that steadfastly again. Fastened in place with the apostles' doctrine. The faith once delivered to the saints. We don't turn from it. We don't change it. We keep it going. Lord, help us do that. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2.15. I want you to know that this is a primary theme of the New Testament. I know that you know these points. But this is a primary theme. Because if we do not vigilantly and diligently apply ourselves, the truth will slip away. We will compromise. We will change along with everyone else. We cannot. We must not. For the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 I already quoted to you verses 13 and 14. Now he says in verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Whether I taught you something verbally when I was preaching at your church, or whether I wrote you an epistle, however you obtained the apostolic tradition, You hold that fast and don't move from it. That is our call from the God of heaven, to be faithful to what He's given us. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Now, when you're standing, you're not moving fast. So again, I'll point out to you, you are fastened in one place, standing there without a chance of moving. Stand fast and hold. Hold your ground. Hold the traditions which ye have been taught. False teachers are on their way. Look at Acts chapter 20. They've been on their way from the very beginning. I'll get a little more dignified. Right now you couldn't make me cold enough. But I'll trust our brother to take care of you with a little more gentleness than I have. Acts chapter 20. Listen to Paul's warning in verse 28. As he has the elders of the church at Ephesus together, he says to them in Acts 20 and verse 28, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul looking at a group of elders that he had ordained, many of them, and saying to them, I know that of yourselves... Some of you will arise to start teaching things that are merely your own opinions rather than the Word of God. And I've warned you night and day against that. And men have been doing that since the days of Paul, and they've been doing it ever since, except it's worse now than it was then. How do I know that? Because 2 Timothy 3.13 says, Evil seducers shall wax worse and worse. We are living in the perilous times of the last days when when an effeminate compromising, worldly, carnal brand of Christianity is taking the world by storm. It's the Benny Hinn, Ricky Warren type of religion. 
It is to accommodate the unregenerate and carnal Christians and make them feel comfortable in the house of God. The house of God is for saints. Paul wrote to saints. Paul didn't write to seekers that were in honky-tonks, bars, brothels, hospitals, or anywhere else. He wrote to saints in churches. They've turned their ears away from the truth. They've turned to fables according to the prophecy and the promise. What are we to do with them? Reject them. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. Romans 16, 17 and 18. We are to mark them and avoid them if they teach anything different than what the Apostle Paul taught. We cannot change. We must not change. Your spirit should be stirred up. I read in Psalm 119, verse 136, David said, Rivers of waters run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. When you go and visit another church and you know that that church is no longer standing for the Bible, it's no longer standing for what their father set in the way of landmarks, it should cause tears to run down your face that men are departing from the truth around us. Here's how Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians 11. He was jealous. Are you jealous for the truth? Jealousy will keep you loyal. Are you jealous for the truth? Do you hate any imposter in the form of a preacher or in the form of a false doctrine or in the form of a false practice? Are you jealous for the truth's sake? 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says in verse 1, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with Godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Paul was afraid for the Corinthian church because he feared that if a false teacher came with another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit, they would probably fall for it. And so he was jealous over them with a godly jealousy because he had espoused them to the Lord Jesus Christ and he wanted them to be a chaste and pure church, a virgin church, pure and holy in the ways of righteousness and truth. So he was jealous for them. There is another Jesus in the world, and he's far more popular than the Jesus of the Bible. But he's an impotent imposter created by the devil. And there is another spirit, and it's not the spirit of the living God. And you can check it out on just about any Christian TV station as they pretend to speak in tongues and as they pretend to heal. And there's another gospel. Lord, have mercy and help us. It's our duty to hold fast, and it's why we're here this morning. Turn to Isaiah chapter 38. Isaiah chapter 38. I need two young ushers. I'll take four. Not yet. I've changed my mind. Just give me a couple more minutes, young men. Thank you. Thank you. Don't be embarrassed. I'm the one that's embarrassed. I called you too early. 
Isaiah 38 and verse 19 is a wonderful words of Hezekiah after the Lord gave him some life extension. You know, life extension is not obtained through a bottle necessarily. Bought at GNC. Life extension is given by the God of heaven. And you young people, if you want to live a long and healthy life, the Bible tells you the secret. Honor your father and your mother. And you can live a long and a good life. Every one of you that's even older, if your parents are alive, do something for them. Honor them. Remember them. Obey them. Esteem them. Reward them. Pamper them. It's a whole lot better than going to the gym and taking vitamins. It's what the Lord says will add to your life. But I'll tell you, the Lord added to Hezekiah's life 15 years by the word of his mouth. And here's what Hezekiah said he was going to do with his time. And I hope all the fathers in here will do this with the time they have left. Isaiah 38, verse 19. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. Amen. What a great verse. That's what Hezekiah said when the Lord said, I'm going to give you 15 more years. Guaranteed. Hezekiah said, how do I know it's guaranteed? Well, take a look at the sundial of Ahaz over there. Which way do you want the shadow to move? Do you want it to move forward or backward? Well, Hezekiah said, moving forward's easy enough. Let's see it go backward. And the Lord moved the sundial of Ahaz backward 10 degrees because that was the guarantee he was going to live 15 more years. But this is his response. The father to the children shall teach the truth. And let's perpetuate the truth in our homes. A landmark established by fathers is meaningless if it's not backed up by Holy Scripture. Now, when I say meaningless, it's meaningless as far as a doctrine that can be required. But if your father takes some stand on some subject that goes beyond Scripture as a matter of liberty in his household, you should obey him. Jeremiah chapter 35 tells us the story of Jonadab and his sons, his grandsons, and his great-grandsons, and that was not scriptural, what he required of them. He required them to go beyond Scripture, not to drink wine and not to live in a fixed house, but to live in tents. There's a whole chapter written about this man because his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren obeyed their father after he was dead. And the Lord said, look at this. These men are obeying their father, but this nation will not obey me. Jeremiah 35. But let us use the time that we have to teach the truth to our children. The Lord was merciful to me while I was away from you. Last Sunday, I got up when you got up. I was praying for you when you were praying for you. I was praying for you when you were starting to teach from this pulpit. I went to the First Baptist Church of Georgetown, and I went to the Bethesda Missionary Baptist Church right after their service. So I was in service until 1.15, just about like you were. Now, the Lord was very kind to me. A couple years ago, I came back from Charlestown. I say that so that all of you children will know who it's named after. And I told you that I had gone to the First Baptist Church of Charleston. And while standing in their foyer waiting for that morning worship service to begin, I found a plaque to a man named William Screven. Let me tell you about William Screven. William Screven was born in 1629, a few years after our King James Bible, in Somerset, England. You can go find it north of Birmingham on a map. 
He was born in 1629. He was baptized. He helped in the formation of some Baptist churches. He then left England in about 1668. He's close to 40 years of age and came to Maine where he landed with a shipbuilder and applied himself in shipbuilding, but he was a Baptist. And he was the first Baptist in the state of Maine. Now, in the state of Maine at that time, the Congregationalists were the standing order, the state church. I love this man. I love the Internet, too. God's given us a witty invention that I can punch in William Screven, and I can read the court records of Maine and what they thought of him and what he had done to upset them. He was first called on the carpet in 1676 by a grand jury that accused him of skipping the assembly of the standing order. What did that mean? He wasn't going to the church with the Congregationalists. Because he was a Baptist, he wasn't going to go into some building where people sprinkled babies. Are you kidding? If you've got any conviction for the truth, that's one of the landmarks we've got to stand for. He was fined. He was imprisoned. Do you know what he was imprisoned for in 1682? Because he had blasphemed God by saying that infant baptism was of the devil. Amen, brother. I've never met you, but I love your zeal for the truth. I read about that man in Charlestown. I read this long bronze plaque they have in the foyer. I just devoured it. I turned to a couple ancient deacons and I said, do you know what you have here? They were stunned by my extreme zeal or whatever it's called. They were stunned. They didn't really know what they had there. They didn't know what they had there. I said, what does this man believe? Because in that track, it doesn't, in that bronze plaque, it doesn't say very much about what he believes. I said, what does this man believe? Would he, could he have held to one of our ancient confessions of faith that meant he was an election preaching, predestination preaching man of God? They didn't know. I came back and I told you about that man. I told you that in 1682, he was put in jail and he was told, we will not stand for you to speak against infant baptism in this state. This is a congregational state and we don't like you. You can go read about it. You can go read the sentences. The court transcript from 1682 is on the Internet. The Lord did that for me. The Lord loves to take care of me in little ways sometimes. When I go on vacation, I don't go to amusement parks or stuff like that. You know what I want to do? I want a chance in, I want a chance in the things that I'm about to tell you. This is Charlestown. Let me tell you more about William Screven. 1682, he, he goes to the First Baptist Church of Boston that had been started about 40 years earlier and gets ordained. They're very careful. They're very careful. The letter... From a deep, the letter from one of the 28 members in Kittery, Maine, to the First Baptist Church of Boston is still available. It's on, you can read it, the whole thing, online, where, they, where he asks the Church of Boston, we have 28 people here who love the Lord Jesus Christ and want to follow him in full religion. We need a pastor. William Screven is able. Will you test him out and ordain him? It's all there. With all the salutations and closings that you would expect from holy apostolic brethren. He goes to Boston in 1682. He gets ordained. He comes back. He forms a church with 28 members. The court tells him, out or you're in in deep trouble with us. Get out of the state 
he says, okay, we'll leave the state. In 1684, he took 28 church members and sailed down the coast of our United States to Charlestown in the province of South Carolina, where it wasn't the congregation was ruling, it was the Church of England. But the Church of England in this place had a little bit more liberty. And so he came to Charlestown, a port, and he came here with 28 people in 1684. And that is the origin of the First Baptist Church of Charleston. Very different than it is now. They weren't selling tokens to go through and rub their pews. He was holding to a confession of faith that we can agree with in great parts. William Screven, 1682. Now, you children, you know our country didn't even get started formally until 1776. So we're talking about 100 years before that. There was the first Baptist church in all the southern part of the United States. There was no Baptist church. There was no Baptist that said he was a Baptist. There was no Baptist preacher. Prior to 1684, when William Screven arrived here, he and his wife had 11 children. The youngest of them was Elisha. He preached that, Now, he's getting pretty old, 1629. Now we're into the early 1700s. Around 1704, he takes his family and moves 70 miles north of Charleston to a bunch of rivers where five rivers congregate together and flow into the Atlantic Ocean called Winya Bay. And there he founded a plantation. His son laid out a city, and he started another Baptist church. He died in 1713, 84 years old. The church in Charleston was up to 100 members, believing many of the things we believe. And I can tell you certain things about them. They would not have celebrated Christmas because Christmas was illegal in this country for another 100 years. People think that we're strange. They're strange. They have gone and ran after Rome. We are not strange. We are holding the same religion of our fathers. We are not removing the ancient landmark of our father. And I can tell you another thing. They didn't have a piano or organ in William Screven's church. Do you know why? Because there wasn't a Baptist church in the world that had a piano and an organ for another 150 years. Charles Spurgeon, 200 years later, still wouldn't have one. He knew what it was. He said, I would sooner pray by a mechanical device than to sing by one. They think we're strange because we don't have those noise boxes up here. Oh, no. We're just trying to hold to the ancient landmarks of our fathers. Brethren, I didn't know all of that from my visit to Charleston. I went to Georgetown because it just looked like a neat place to go where there wouldn't be any tourists or juveniles. Thank you, Chris, for introducing us to your term of choice. I knew there wouldn't be any juveniles at Georgetown. It was too serious. It was a historical town. So on Friday morning, nine days ago, I got up, I went into Charleston and started walking up and down Main Street. Now, some, some places don't get up very early. They weren't ready for me. So I had to wait for a couple of hours pacing on the sidewalks before somebody would come to, to work. They have a laid-back lifestyle, they told me. I said, I want to know the oldest Baptist church in this county. Well, that was after I asked the woman at the information desk, what denomination are you? Which she didn't want to tell me right off the bat. She thought that was a little too bold for my first question. I said, where's the oldest Baptist church in town, in this county? She didn't know. Okay. Okay, I was a little discouraged. Sherry knows exactly what happened. I was over there looking at a brochure about the town, and it said, 
No, we found a sign. We found a sign in the street that said this town was founded by Elisha Screven. I did, I did not go to Georgetown for one thing to do with Screven. I just wanted the oldest Baptist church. I just wanted to go see what they were up to these days. Oh, Elisha Screven. I turned to the, this person. I turned to this person. Is Elisha Screven related to William Screven? Oh, they didn't know. Are you kidding? They didn't know. And then I'm walking down Main Street, and there's a street sign. Screven Street. Oh, brethren. I was so excited. I was so excited. Then I, They had a little museum there, and I went to that museum. And as I walked through the door, here's the original 1734 drawing laying out every city street, every lot by hand. I have a copy that is going to be put in your hands in just a moment. I walked in, I looked at that thing, and it said, by Elisha Screven. He founded and laid out the whole city of Georgetown. I said, what are these five spaces up here at the top? I looked at them closely. I saw the Church of England with a two-acre site. Yeah, he had to do that or he'd have been run off the land. (laughs) Then next to it was a one-acre square. It said the Anabaptist Meeting House. The Anabaptist Meeting House on an official survey for the town of Georgetown. And there's Screven Street running right down through the middle of town straight out from that church spot. I said, do you know any more about William Screven and Elisha Screven? Here, young man, I need your help now. I have four per pew. You can just hand out four per pew and we should be fine. Thank you, Anthony. Here, Anthony, how about, how about if I have one? Thank you. Please don't look at the side that has the, the church building on it. Look at the other side because that's what I saw when I went through the doorway, except it was much, much larger than this. And I want you to see the little highlighted spot up there. That is a one-acre site. All these streets are still there, exactly as laid out in 1734, with the same names. Water, um, Mark, Church Street. Church Street. You know, our town has a church street. Charleston has a church street. That's where the churches were, and that's where Elisha Screven put spots for the churches. That's Highway 17 coming north out of Charleston, running all the way to Myrtle Beach. For a little section, it's called Church Street as it runs through Georgetown. But there is the little designation. Can you look at it closely and see the Anna? Then the next line, Baptist Meeting, lot number 228. I hope you can read that. If you look to the right of that page, you can see written vertically in handwriting is for Mr. Elisha Screven. It's in the right-hand side of the page put there by the surveyor. Now turn it over, please. This is the name he gave to the Baptist church that was called the Anabaptists. And I want you to think about it for a minute, and I'm going to be silent. Antipodo, Baptist Church of Christ. 
on this large layout that had much more detail than the one you have, the church was named Antipodo Baptist Church of Christ. Praise the God of heaven. As soon as you figure that out, maybe you'll have what happened to me happen to you. When I saw that word, Antipodo, I'm cheating you by mispronouncing it. Keep thinking, folks. When I saw that word, I called for one of those ancient ladies in there that were the guardians and curators of the county museum for Georgetown County. I said, come here. Do you know what that word means? No. Are you a Baptist? Yes. I'm a member of that church. You don't know what it means. Let me tell you what it means. Oh, praise the Lord. The heat. Do you know what it means yet? Antipodo Baptist Church of Christ? Or should we pronounce that first word a little differently? Antipado. Antipado. Baptist Church of Christ. Now how politically correct is that to line yourself up next to the Church of England and name your church Antipado Church of Christ? Pado-baptism is the baptism of children. A pediatrician is a child's doctor. Pado means child. Anti-Pado means no children, Baptist Church of Christ. His father had been persecuted in Maine. They had come to Charlestown. Now they were in Georgetown. And they were going to let the whole world know. Well, the Baptist flunked when I asked her. And she was working in the museum. So I called a Church of England lady over and said, Do you know what this means? Oh, yes. I know what pedo baptism means. I said, can you believe this Baptist? He wanted to get that right up in front, didn't he? Yes, he did. The editor of the Georgetown newspaper walked in. I said, do you know what this means? Yes, I do, but I don't think it needs to be there. Everyone that, everyone that knows about religion knows that a Baptist means we don't baptize children. I said, well, he wanted to get that extra word in front of it in case you forgot that. Anti-Pado Baptist Church of Christ. He was going to stand for a landmark and not remove it. And he was not going to let anyone push him around. And the Lord arranged all of this for me to be able to see it. That little one acre square, that building stood for 140 years or so that you see there to the right by that name. And then it was taken down and they moved to a larger facility, but it is still the cemetery. That one acre is a cemetery with massive stones and wonderful descriptions of the life of William Screven and Elisha Screven. And there's state state poles with signs there beside the road explaining this is the former home of anti-Pado Baptist Church of Christ and is now their cemetery. You walk into the cemetery, there's this very large, and I'm going to have pictures at break, monument, and it says, Anti-Pado Baptist Church. And you go up to it, and it's all the members from their first 100 years engraven on the four sides of that stone. This is a Baptist town called, with a church called Anti-Pado Baptist Church. The marker said, if you'll go a couple blocks away, you can find the Screven Family Cemetery. So in the middle of a parking lot with a 10-foot by 30-foot little cemetery with a little brick wall, 
There is a bronze plaque saying, Here lies William Screven, the pioneer Baptist in the South, who came from England, could not endure Maine due to persecution for not conforming, came to Charlestown, came to Georgetown, preached the gospel. He and his family are lying beneath your feet. Now, I didn't go to Georgetown for one bit of that. But I'll tell you at that point, if a crowd would have congregated, I'd have preached about baptism. (laughs) Remove not the ancient landmark. And that text came to me right then and grabbed a hold of me. Remove not the ancient landmark. That man was not going to let true Bible baptism be lost because of the Church of England, because of the Congregationalists, and all the other baby sprinklers. Children. There's two billion people in the world that call themselves Christians. Two billion. But only 50 million of them practice believer's baptism. Two and a half percent. The rest are baby sprinklers. If you look at the left, there's a very, very short, short, imperfect timeline. We believe that there were Baptists in England during the life of the Apostle Paul from numerous historical sources. They were persecuted, and so they lived mostly in Wales, which was wild, mountainous terrain where they could be protected from the Saxons that were sent often to destroy them. Pope Gregory the Great sent St. Augustine in 597 to Christianize the British Isles, and when he went there, he met 1,200 preachers out of Wales. They were all massacred by the Saxons because they would not submit to three things that St. Augustine required. Submit to the authority of Rome. Baptize your children. Celebrate Easter the way we tell you to celebrate it. Those three reasons. Those are all well documented in history. Our brothers, they were not going to remove the ancient landmark. Then you have some information that I've already told you about William Screven. It's called the Antipato Baptist Church of Christ. And then it began to change. From the doctrines of election and predestination that have been taught there and all the inventions of the 20th century, that church has drastically changed from what it was when it began. William Screven, when he died, he told the membership of the church in Charleston, you make sure that you get a sound man that is orthodox in the faith and holds to the same confession of our Baptist brethren from London. Don't you dare move away from that. Can you imagine what he would think today if he were to chance into that church and see the great changes that have taken place there? Arminianism, musical instruments, and a host of other additions. You know, I read the dedication to their building in 1949, the building that they're presently meeting in, and I'm not trying to run down any church at all, because this is true of all churches today. It's a general problem. 1949, the convocation of a dedication of a Baptist church building was made by the Masonic Lodge. Lord have mercy upon us. How do you bring an organization of the devil into the church of Jesus Christ and make it part of your service? Of course, the pulpit Bible, I mean the pew Bibles were not King James Bibles. They were new international versions. The Lord was very kind to me. Signs outside, that huge Baptist, First Baptist Church structure, there's state signs in the road telling you this used to be Antipato Baptist Church. Then you go to the cemetery. This is the Antipato Baptist Church. You wander through it. 
There's the grave of Edmund Botsford. You say, who's Edmund, Bot- Edmund Botsford? Now, this is where I'm going to have to leave you hanging, and I hope that you can handle it because I'm having a hard time hanging. There was a man named Francis Marion who fought in the American Revolution called the Swamp Fox. He was born near Georgetown. It's all right. It's five rivers, five rivers, swamps, and they raised rice. They turned it into rice plantations. That man knew all those swamps because he had grown up there as a boy. And while the, while the British were in Charlestown, he made havoc of them by raiding them out of those swamps where they could not find him. Some of you, I am sure, have seen a movie about Francis Marion and his life called The Patriot. That man's chaplain was Edmund Botsford, who was the first full-time pastor of Antipato Baptist Church of Georgetown. Now, where did Edmund Botsford come from? He came from a church 90 miles northwest of Georgetown called Welsh Neck Baptist Church. Welsh Neck Baptist Church was started in 1736 when, when the provincial government granted 10,000 acres to all the Welsh that wanted to come from Pennsylvania and Wales and settle there. And that became a Welsh community. And Welsh Neck Baptist Church ordained Edmund Botsford, who took over that church as its first full-time pastor. Welsh Neck Baptist Church started 38 churches in South Carolina. That was an entirely Welsh, Calvinistic, Baptist conclave there in the middle of our state of South Carolina. Darlington and Marlboro counties of this state. Today over there, there is a Baptist association called Welsh Neck Baptist Church. It's called Welsh because that's what all the people were. It's called Neck because it was a neck of the PD River. For those of you that have been in that part of the state, you know there's a great and a smaller PD River. The Welsh Neck Baptist Church. So we had, we had Welshmen. We had Baptists from Wales that came first of all to Pennsylvania and Delaware and formed the Welsh Track Baptist Church there, moved to South Carolina and from Wales, and started the Welsh Neck Baptist Church that started 38 other churches and sent their pastor to be the pastor after Elisha Screven and a few other intervening years. Those men stood for the ancient landmark. But you know what? Many of the landmarks have fallen away. And when we come back from after break, we are going to run at top speed through a long list of the ancient landmarks that they have lost that God is holding us accountable to keep. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word and may these witnesses stir our hearts.